0: Inspiration, success stories, expert advice, strategies, new ideas, and amazing conversations. Everything you need to become a great speaker. This is Oscar Santolaya, and welcome to Time to Shine. Hello, and thanks for joining today. Today we'll have a very interesting interview with a real expert in persuasion, and he has written books in a very creative way, so there's a lot to discuss today. Jay Heinrichs is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Thank You for Arguing, what Aristotle, Lincoln, and Homer Simpson can teach us about the art of persuasion. As a persuasion and conflict consultant, he has conducted influence strategy and training for clients. As varied as Kaiser, Permanente, Harvard, Professional Speech Writers Association, the Pentagon, and NASA. Hello, Jay. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Oscar. Nice to be with you.
0: Great to be with you, uh, Jay. And we had the chance to meet in person a couple of months ago here in in Helsinki. Um, it was uh, great that you were here in a quite short visit. Uh, but we have a chat there, and I heard fabulous things about your, your workshops. Yeah, great to talk now again. And I was uh, very puzzled about finding your, your books. And I would like to hear more also what you have been doing. So please start telling us how you end up being an expert or so much interested in writing about persuasion. So what brought you there?
1: I grew up loving books. And the, the problem was that I always wondered what words did besides sitting around and looking pretty. I mean, I was reading novels and nonfiction, but I had a sense that words changed the world, but mm-hmm. how they did that, what the what the tools were behind that, that was all a mystery to me. Now, I grew up in a generation in the United States that did not study rhetoric at all. And it was largely dead except on a few college campuses that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. So I went through college. I went to graduate school, dropped out Uh (laughs) without going into academia and Mm -hmm. I became a journalist uh, and then ended up um, teaching and acting as an administrator at an Ivy league university, Dartmouth college Mm -hmm where I was, after a few years, very bored. And I discovered rhetoric by accident in a part of the library where books hadn't been checked out in maybe 100 years. (laughs) And uh, one of those books caught my eye. I think it was colored red, like bound in red leather, and the other books were much duller colored. And I took it down, and it was signed by John Quincy Adams, who was to become president of the United States. Uh At the Uh time, he was the United States senator teaching at Harvard a series of lectures to freshmen mm-hmm. about rhetoric and oratory. And he told these students to catch from the relics of ancient oratory those unresisted powers which mold the mind of man to the will of the speaker and so on. And I thought, I've got to get me those powers. That's, this is what I've been waiting for. So for the next 15 years, I read everything that John Quincy Adams told me to read in that book. And I uh, interviewed rhetoricians around the world and started writing about it. And that's what got me hooked on this whole thing. And that was many years ago, I, I, but I haven't given it up since.
0: Okay, excellent. And then you decided to write a books and you, you say you have three books, correct?
1: Three books on rhetoric, yeah, and working on a fourth, mm-hmm. The first, the first one, and the one I believe that you're familiar with is "Thank You for Arguing." That's the one that became a bestseller. Um, I wrote another one called "Word Hero" about figures of speech and tropes, and then the latest book "Thank You for Argu- Thank You for Art." What am I saying? How to argue with a cat? Yes. I should know the title of, titles of my own books. How to argue with a cat. Which is a sort of simpler introduction to rhetoric and one that doesn't get caught up on exactly what words to use since Mm cat's vocabulary is somewhat more limited than humans' vocabulary. Uh, And that is doing really well. It's a bestseller in the UK and it's climbing the charts here in America.
0: Wow, excellent. People
1: are crazy cats so whether i can take any credit for the book selling well uh i don't know but cats certainly can
0: yeah the cats uh <laughs> call the attention of course it's a uh, magnificent the way uh, you have partnered with a illustrator to to make this uh, this book so appealing and also visually
1: yeah and it's actually you know since i'm sure many of your listeners are interested in the content world. Um, one of the reasons why I partnered as a full partner with Natalie Palmer Sutton, who um, I'd met actually when she was art director of Ogilvy UK, this big advertising agency in London. Um, I was doing a workshop there and uh, and some consulting work. And I had asked to borrow Natalie's office to check email. And her mm-hmm. office had this wall-length, hilarious illustration of a cat that she had drawn. And I said to her, hey, someday we should do a book about how to argue with a cat. Uh-huh. My, my wife had said she'd noticed that every book with cat in the title seemed to be a bestseller. So she had <laughs> said to me, you've got to write a book with cat in the title. We need the money. Uh-huh. And um, so I, the thing about Natalie that's really cool is that um, she is a real master at social marketing. And so she's doing all these absolutely hilarious animated GIFs and um, videos, and um, she knows how to reach audiences. And so she's been activating uh, cat fanatics around the world and has a lot to do with selling the book. And that's really important in the book world, by the way. It is. You can't just sell a book by writing it and then hoping people buy it. I mean, like everything else, you've got to push it. And she's really good at that.
0: Oh yeah, an excellent that. Uh, yeah, she's she's good at uh, illustration and also, as you say, in the marketing. That uh, that's what brings people, and what brings people that are not only interested in rhetoric. No, as, uh bring other other people who, by curiosity, will come read your book and who has a lot to learn about persuasion, and also get um, entertained by the cat story.
1: Right. right this is this is a classical rhetorical gesture which is to you know appeal to what people already like and introduce them to something else and and i had been asked for some years by people who said you know, thank you for arguing is great, but this is a lot to learn. There are some 120 tools. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, it's it, people get PhDs in this subject. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to just sort of give people a quick and easy introduction? And if they want, they can go on to thank you for arguing. And I've been struggling to find a way to do it that, mm-hmm. that wasn't completely silly. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, writing, writing about how to argue with a cat can seem pretty silly, but actually a lot of those tools that cats use to manipulate us really apply to humans as well. And so it's it. You know, I decided, what the heck, it works.
0: So could you give us some of this, uh, an overview of your book, or, or some of the main ideas, the main tools from this book?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, the more I work with clients um, on argumentation, the more I realize that the most successful kinds of arguments don't appear to be arguments at all. In other words, when people disagree, the one who generally wins is the one who seems to be arguing less. Mm-hmm. So it's the person who listens, the person who appears to love the other side, not not simply mm-hmm. dispute it. The one who um, sort of you know looks like he or she is glad to be with the person. And cats actually do, and so actually, as part of um, the marketing for this book, I went to this um, annual celebration of authors by um, um, Penguin UK, uh, Penguin Random House, and in front of a thousand people, I told these uh, these people to I told them um, to smell each other and then <laughs> lick each other on the backs of their necks oh. and <laughs> i was being lit up by spotlights on a stage i couldn't see if people were actually doing it but i definitely heard a gale of really uncomfortable laughter <laughs> including my own and that's it. so that's one thing that's one technique um Another is, you know, a lot of um, really good persuasion has to do with your presentation to an audience. And, you know, this is a speechwriter that, um, you know, posture is extremely important, you know, an open posture, but one that's erect, um, you know, one that's graceful um is hugely important. Another th- and cats have amazing posture for the most part. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that, that you can learn from a cat is is that um, you know, as Marcus Tullius Cicero, one of the great speech writers of all time, according to himself, um, said the eyes are the window to the soul, and what's interesting is that even if your client is speaking in front of a large audience and you can't see them, and they probably can't see your eyes unless this thing is televised, you actually can change the tone of your voice and and really change your audience's attitude toward you simply by making your eyes express what you're feeling or what you want your audience to think you're feeling. And um, there's a lot of research on this that, that shows this to be effective. The eyes are the windows of the, soul, window of the soul, but they're also your window to yourself in a way. And cats, I have this one cat who, you know, most cats um, will lose a staring contest with you. I mean, if you stare back at them, it's considered to be a challenge and they'll back down because you're bigger. <laughs> I have this cat, he's a tiny cat who will stare me down all the time. And he does it in the most eloquent ways. I always know exactly what this little creature wants, um, which is a toy or food. I mean, the usual stuff, petting. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of that is um, instructive to somebody like me who grew up thinking you need to have exactly the right words. You know, words, words are really what win more than anything else. And, but actually a lot of rhetoric has to do with, um, you know, your ability to make an audience like and trust you. I mean, Aristotle himself said that ethos, this quality of your audience's opinion of you is more important even than logic. The other thing is I can give you a third one if you're up for it. Um, and that is, you know, cats are extraordinary at fitting themselves into really tight places (laughs) they they can squeeze into any box i mean show them Mm -hmm. a box that's like one tenth their size and somehow they'll get inside it and you know that's instructive in the sense that um it allows a really good way to understand what decorum really is and decorum is latin more or less for fitness or fitting in and in any kind of persuasion your ability to convince your audience that you fit with it somehow mm, is yeah. really important and if you see what a cat can do a cat won't change the box which is what a human would do a cat changes yeah. itself you know yes. its its own posture you know its own way of fitting in and that's what you need to do with an audience which does not necessarily mean trying to imitate the audience especially if you're really different from it but rather that you share some things in common. And so decorum is all this stuff. You know, when I talk about posture and decorum and gesturing through the eyes, um, um, loving your audience, um, purring, um, all that, you know, none of that involves words necessarily. Mm -hmm. One of the things I tell clients, um, as one of my income streams, I coach um, corporate, groups who are doing presentations for business. Uh, in other words, trying to win business for their companies. And um, before they go in, I tell them to send love beams out of their eyes, which makes them look at me like I'm crazy. But I say, just <laughs> do it. Just try it. Say to yourself, I love these people, even if I have a mm-hmm. them. When I walk into the room, I'm going to continue loving them. And what happens is they come back and say my age my this this group engaged with me better than i've ever seen a group engage and it's simply people you know people want to be loved and appreciated like everybody else that's what cats teaches
0: wow <laughs> yeah I, I like a lot what um, these lessons from cats that you have observed so have you had many cats on your do you have now you have you have before
1: we have two cats okay. and this is um you know our kids are grown and they've moved away. And one sure way of showing yourself to be an annoying empty nester is to talk about your cats. <laughs> <laughs> so we have two cats. Um, uh, we've had a total of, I, g- I guess, four.
0: Wow! Excellent. So, <laughs> so I like the, yeah, the 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 third one. I think was of your takeaways. You mentioned that the cat. Fits in the in the box, no? <laughs> so it's 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 really true. You have to um, fit in the in the specific audience you you have to talk with, or the person you are going to talk with. And yeah, I think I will I will always remember this uh, the the picture of the cat fitting in, in the box.
1: Yeah, and it's it's a tricky it's a tricky image in a way because well, I mean, for example, just before you. Um, I did a Skype in, um, I do this several times a week, this time of year, with um, a high school class that was studying my book. And, um, you know, I'm 63 years old. These kids are 17, Mm -hmm. you know, 16 and 17 years old. Um, You know, I don't, I don't watch the same movies, I don't read the same books. Uh, um, You know, I I don't have a lot in common with Mm -hmm. them. And yet, I feel like, uh, and I'm, talk, they, they end up saying how much they enjoy these sessions because, um, I don't talk down to them, which is obviously mm-hmm. really important. I share many of the same values that they share. Um, and I, and I sort of point out those things that we do have in common. I mean, I, even while I'm making fun of myself for being an old white man. You know the exact (laughs) demographic group that's ruining the world, (laughs) (laughs) and you know the fact that I'm sharing their belief that white men are why all white men are ruining the world. You know brings me in common with something with really value. So it's not it's not fitting exactly into the box. In other words, it's but it's on the other hand, it's not trying to make the box fit me. If that makes sense.
0: Oh yeah, that that's true. Exactly. Um. So yeah, that's uh, interesting takeaway from this book. I would like to also hear something about the thank you for arguing book that in you mentioned they use uh, Homer Simpson also as one of the <laughs> characters.
1: Right. Well, you know the thing about the Simpsons, you know the the TV series, which by the way is the longest lived uh, TV show. In American history, now it it beat I Love Lucy. I think last year, Um, I I really didn't know anything about The Simpsons. We uh, we don't actually have television. You know, I said the earlier before this session that we live in the country and we we actually don't get television. Although now we have internet um, with Mm -hmm. Netflix. Yes. Um, before that, I I never watched The Simpsons. I barely kn- knew who they were.
0: So you, hope you and, found them. Um,
1: I was struggling while writing. Thank you for arguing mm-hmm. with to find a way to teach rhetorical logic. Which you know, in order to teach rhetorical logic, you have to talk about formal logic a little bit, even though that rhetorical logic is different from formal logic. But I couldn't find a way to teach things like fallacies in a way that didn't bore. Even me,
0: you
1: know, (laughs) it's the worst subject to learn. It's logic. And in a way that makes people not want to just throw the book across the room. (laughs) Uh, So my son, George, um, said, hey, dad, you know, and he was 15 when he said this. This is a proud father talking here. Um, He said, I'm not sure about this, but it seems like the humor in The Simpsons Has to do with violations of logic. Like all their. The show is funny because it's full of fallacies. Okay. (laughs) He said, you know, why don't you watch The Simpsons and tell me if I'm right? So I I literally went to the video rental store. Okay. I rented all these videos. This is pre DVD Mm -hmm. um, of. The Simpsons, and I said to George, you are right, sir. I mean, this is all their humor is based on logical fallacies. Well, at the time, I was doing a um, a blog called Figaro Speech. Um, and uh, in fact, I'm about to revive it to talk about tropes. And um, so I was writing about The Simpsons and logic um, and showing how fallacies work just in this blog post this is before I was writing the book. And um, the Matt Groening, the head writer and the guy behind the Simpsons, actually um, referred to my blog oh. on the internet as the nerdiest website on the internet. <laughs> I, I was so proud.
0: <laughs> well. <laughs> So the Simpsons are based on the hu- humor of the Simpsons are based on fallacies.
1: Yeah, one of the things I point out in in the book is this particular fallacy that people fall for a lot, which I call the all natural fallacy. It has a Latin name; we won't go into. But the the um, uh, there's this particular episode where um, Homer, the dad, offers his daughter Lisa a donut. And Lisa, who is always the good girl, and she says, no, thanks, Dad. Do you have any fruit? And Homer looks at this donut and says, this donut has purple. Purple is a fruit. (laughs) You know, that is absolutely pointing out, brilliantly pointing out this fallacy. What happens is people... Uh, marketers will sell processed food saying it contains you know real juice (laughs)
0: yeah
1: or you know um, whole grain products without mentioning the thousand other ingredients that are bad for you that these things have and um, you know Contains all natural ingredients is a really common expression, which may, which implies that the thing is organic and clean and, you know, will set your humors to rights or whatever. And when really uh, contains all natural ingredients means absolutely nothing. It's a really marvelous fallacy. Yeah, and funny. we all fall, fall for it.
0: But that's, that's The
1: Simpsons. I mean, t- mm-hmm. just about every fallacy that anyone has ever named somehow the writers of The Simpsons have come up with. And what's interesting to me is that um, some of them literally did study philosophy. But um, the, the most common discipline that the writers of The Simpsons share is mathematics. And they learn logic through math. So they learn logic the really old school, hardcore way. Uh, which I find just fascinating since I didn't. And the fact that I can, you know, they went to all the trouble to study all this stuff to write this show. <laughs> and so I'm I'm tapping their mathematical knowledge without knowing anything about math.
0: <laughs> all right. It makes me feel like uh, going to get some... Seem some uh, chapters to, uh, episodes to, to watch, I haven't watched for a long time. Huh?
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I, I had uh, in a conversation I had earlier with the high school class, they were asking me what, you know, the, the book has been through three editions. And they said, um, what does it take to write a new edition? And I said, well, one the publisher says that a third of the book has to be different each time. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly added material so it gets sure. fatter with each edition and um, and I said one of the things I try to do is to make sure that the popular culture is current
0: yeah exactly I,
1: I really struggle with the Simpsons who are getting less popular now I mean they're they're gonna stop altogether it seems and um and I said to, to the, I asked the students, what do you think? Should I keep going with The Simpsons? And most classes, I've asked this before, say, mm-hmm. no, "No, no, we, you know, we still watch Simpsons it's okay. fine, we, you know, because no show truly dies on the internet." Yes. But these students said, "No, you got to drop the Simpsons." Okay. Um We all love watching The Office, uh-huh. and it's, The Office isn't based on logic at all. <laughs> So I think I'm screwed. In other words, I don't know oh, what I'm going to do to teach logic if I can't do the Simpsons.
0: You have to find someone. Well, hopefully, some <laughs> someone comes up with something that is. I
1: guess like, so. I, I should call my son George. Maybe he can help me figure it out. Yeah,
0: go and watch all the possible <laughs> series. Find. <it. laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny when I was watching The Simpsons, um, it was real research for me. I mean, I scheduled a time during the day, which I do when I'm researching something, and very seriously sat down and watched these shows. And, you know, my wife would come back from work and see me, you know, watching (laughs) TV. What hours? You know, I had quit my job to write a book and <laughs> she she sees her husband just with his feet up watching television with a cat on his lap. And for a while there things were kind of rocky between the two of us.
0: <laughs> I, I had to
1: convince her that this was actual real research. It was for real.
0: It's serious research.
1: Yeah, exactly. It was and couldn't be more serious. I was taking notes for crying out loud.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh... <laughs> And what else? Couple of you. You mentioned that this this book, um, the first book, is already growing. Now it's in the third ed- edition, and you, I think, you mentioned there are like two hundred um, drops or takeaways. Well, tools. I call
1: them tools, yeah, two, 120 tools. and. Um, You know, I don't think people should be scared off by that. I mean, basically, it teaches you the whole gamut of rhetoric through these tools. So one of the things I do with clients, by the way, is I won't take on a a persuasion client, as I call them, um, unless I can get data out of it. I want to know what works and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so um, I have kind of can't call it a scientific attitude, but it's definitely a statistical attitude toward Tools and some of the things I've tried in the past haven't worked so well, and mm-hmm. others other things have worked way better than I expected. And so those are the tools I focus on the most.
0: Mm-hmm. So you always aim to get uh, to know the results of what uh, after your customers using these tools what they get. So.
1: Yeah, because otherwise it's nothing but BS, you know. <laughs> you know <laughs> Could be. people see it as, you know, purely manipulative with some mm-hmm. big ethical problems. And, of course, ethics are a big problem yes. for persuasion in general, course, as you know. Um, that being said, I'm able now to say, you know, that, that I have tested these tools with the largest healthcare company in the United States uh-huh. um, to... Um, teach pediatricians to talk parents into having their children vaccinated uh-huh. and um they met they measured the results of this protocol mm-hmm. to talk to um, parents mostly mothers against a previous protocol that had been written by a psychologist now i didn't do this alone i worked with a team of uh, doctors sure. to, to do this um but, seeing the results with more people vaccinating their children because of this conversation an ethical conversation by the way um, you know allows me to say, "Hey, kids are getting vaccinated this is this is good stuff
0: excellent yes
1: yeah and and so and there are a lot of i mean I don't take on evil clients, <laughs> <laughs> so the data I show aren't just data showing the tools work they also show that work is really important in getting people together to agree on something and take action. And, and that's, you know, it allows persuasion in ways where everyone walks away the better for it. I mean, that's, that's persuasion at its best.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that already a few times that you work with, uh, with students, right? From school. And I also saw, I was checking your Twitter feed and, and I saw photos of you with the uh, schoolers. Uh, that's fabulous work you are doing. How that started? So when since when uh, the teachers started using your books or how how this started? I uh,
1: you know, I originally lost the argument with the publisher over who the book should be for. Mm-hmm. So, um I thought it actually should be for women because Okay. You know, w- women probably need these tools more i mean research shows pretty clearly that women tend to talk less in meetings men tend to dominate meetings more women have all kinds of challenges in the workplace that i think rhetoric could help with mm-hmm. um the publisher said no no you know this should be for men who dominate business that's how we're going to sell the book and the
0: opposite. like I, I, <laughs> okay
1: they have power i can, and apparently i didn't persuade them Meanwhile, so the book comes out, it sells pretty well, um, and uh, at the same time, teachers across America were trying to find a way to teach English uh, in a way that didn't just involve literature, because there was a law that was passed, believe it or not, that sort of mandated this for high-level students, something other than literature should be taught. And they were sort of casting about for what they should be, that should be. At the same time, an exam, the, the advanced placement, one of the advanced placement exams, which is a college level exam that helps determine what you should study in college and what level you enter at, um, had for, for um, English, English language, had a rhetorical component. They were asking about figures of speech and other aspects of persuasion, tropes, that kind of thing. And teachers were trying to find an entertaining way to teach it. And so they started ordering my book in bulk. Um, And when I realized that they were doing this, when I found out, I engaged with the academic division at Random House, the publisher, and said, you know, we've got to work with these teachers and make it as easy for them as possible. And then I reached out to the teachers and I said, can we do a teacher's guide for you? And we did. Uh-huh. I worked with a PhD rhetorician on that. And then I and I said, um, you know, what else can we do for you? Can I, can I, you know, sit in on your classes and talk to the students? And they all they said yes. <laughs> And so it's a significant part of my day now. It really eats up a lot, but I don't regret it. And, you know, the thing is, as I say to the students, you know, they're responsible for saving the world. (laughs) My generation has screwed it up to a fair well. Uh, (laughs) It's up (laughs) to them to fix it. And, you know, what will fix it is what created republics and democracies in the first place, which is the art of rhetoric this ability to persuade people to make decisions in common. And um and so I, my heart is glad. I, I really am so happy that the book is being read more by people that age than any other age.
0: Yeah, that's not easy. Many authors would like to to have this audience. That's really fabulous that you're working with uh with students. Uh...
1: people. In fact, you know, when I read, when I was um, writing, thank you for arguing. um, I actually asked the kids, I I asked uh, my kids to invite their friends over and I bribed them with Uh snacks. uh, And I read sections of the manuscript to them. And these were great kids, but you know, being kids, teenagers, um, they would start playing with each other or, you know, throwing their pens around or whatever. And um, every time they got distracted or bored, I would hide the section of the manuscript and try to make it funnier or more entertaining. And so the book really was kind of market tested right from the beginning as I was writing it by kids. And, And I think that made all the difference. Okay was that if if I could keep a, teenager, a teenager's attention, then anybody would want to read this book. I mean, I wasn't trying to appeal to teenagers at all. It never occurred to me that parents or teachers or students themselves would ever buy the book. But it was simply my way of giving it the hardest possible test in front of the worst possible audience, which was my kids and their friends.
0: Yeah, that's excellent piece of advice for any any writer, anyone who is writing a book, you Not know, to do this self, uh, yeah, like, like, how do you call it, self-editing or quality assurance, however you call it, but uh, testing that uh, many audience will, will understand it, will get points and will not get bored.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're writing a speech for a politician, maybe that's a good test.
0: <laughs> yeah so
1: exactly. deliver the speech in front of kids and and see the points where you lose them
0: yeah because everybody has to understand you no, one, no matter the, the background
1: yeah it would be really interesting to try out speeches about Brexit right now to kids in the UK <laughs> <laughs> see how they do
0: okay Have, <laughs> has any British politician called you lately?
1: <laughs> yeah, no. No, no. <laughs> Possibly for good reason. I think they're busy.
0: They're they're busy too busy. Okay, good luck, good luck. <laughs> uh Jay, could you now share with us what is your favorite quotation?
1: Ah, my favorite quotation is one of from one of my favorite writers and a great um speechmaker and politician, Winston Churchill, who said, We shape our houses and then they shape us. And that's really important in rhetorical, uh, from a rhetorical standpoint, because the words we utter shape our own brains. And I'm actually working on a book about that. Mm-hmm. I, I just think it's it also is one of my favorite, my very favorite figure of speech, which is the chiasmus, uh, the mirror figure, which uh, expresses a clause and then turns it around backwards. We shape our houses and then they shape us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, fabulous. I, I have... I have barely heard that uh, that quotation so yeah it's a, it's a definitely good one could you now share with us recommend us one book that has been particularly inspiring or influential for you
1: can I name two because I'll tell you what there's always one there's one book I go back to again and again and ah. again but then the most immediately influential book is the last one I read
0: sure please <laughs> go ahead
1: So I I just finished um, reading the book, These Truths, by Joe. It's a book of American history in one volume. It's not that big. It's like 600 pages, which, you know, to cover a lot of history. And the interesting thing about it is that Lepore explores the question of when is a nation, a tribe, and when is it a set of principles and values, and that argument over whether you know, we're a group of citizens or something that's or a nation that stands for something has been at, in the center of politics for hundreds of years and particularly now. So I find it just fascinating. It's a great book. But, you know, the book that I refer to over and over again and have ever since my freshman year in college is Bartlett's familiar quotations. I uh-huh. don't look. Up, I sometimes look up quotes to make sure I've got them accurately. But, you know, before I start writing, I find that it's, especially if I want to write like memorable <laughs> phrases, short things, uh, you know, embedded in whatever I'm writing, I'll read just at random through Bartlett's familiar quotations, this reference book. And I'll, I'll pick up so many different writing styles and so many ways of expressing that I find myself like coming up with what's what sound like cool familiar quotations of my own <laughs> and I, I i find it a great way to get unstuck as a writer i will just go through bartlett's quotations i bought that book by the way for what seemed like a vast amount of money i mm-hmm. i had a paper route and i i managed a loading dock in a department store in the summer um i had no money and so i ended up um buying this book, and I would choose a quotation every day, and I would type it on my typewriter, this was pre-computer, on an index card, and tape it outside my dorm room door, which I shared with a really good-looking roommate. All the women were going for him. (laughs) And that's how I got females to talk to me. They would come and read my nerdy quotation of the day and Uh talk to me about it. So, that's how I had a social life. How pathetic is that? But so that's Bartlett's. It's and, the past. You know, I would encourage everybody to do that. You, you just, it, it cleanses the soul if every day you read a little bit of Bartlett's.
0: Okay, yeah. Quotation, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's always good to learn new quotations and, and, and have more there in your mind when it's the right time.
1: Reading something so varied, um, you know, with so many different people over so many different eras, makes all the difference, I think. It, it expands your mind yeah, and frees you up from the sort of, um, you know, stylistic bad habits that everybody acquires. So I, I just think it's really important for a writer. It's a great exercise.
0: Yeah, it is. It is uh, to hear more the language, of course. So, Jay, could you... Could you now uh, share with us an exercise, something practical that you recommend and do it a rec- uh, daily or weekly, a routine to shine?
1: I have declared my own time zone. Mm-hmm. I call it J-like savings. I get up at 4.30 in the morning Ouch! Um, and I exercise, I work out, and then... Um, I read the news and I plan what I'm gonna write for the day. it's It's you know when the phone doesn't ring, mm. nobody's bothering me. There's nothing I want to do outside because it's generally dark. Mm. Um, and And you know it's crazy as this whole thing sounds every you know and and or maybe cliche, get up early. I think it's really important Every time I suggest that to somebody, though, they say I'm not a morning person. Who in his right mind gets up at four thirty in the morning? Nobody is a morning person at four thirty in the morning. On the other hand, if I say I'm flying to London tomorrow, you know, which is yeah. five hours ahead of us, nobody says to me, "Oh my gosh, you're going to get up five hours early in the morning." I could never do that. You know, instead they say, "Wow, cool, you're going to London." Mm-hmm. So somehow we can overcome our difficulties getting out of bed if we make it a habit or we have sufficient reason. And for me, this is my time. It's J-wide savings. Now, the downside of that, of course, is that I'm extremely boring in the evenings.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, luckily, I'm talking with you. It's noon at your time, so I believe. So you're still with a lot of energies. <laughs>
1: Actually, it's one o'clock. It's one o'clock
0: now, yeah. <laughs> so
1: within the next hour, my circadian rhythm is going to start really spiraling down and it will be time for another espresso.
0: Okay, okay, okay. So I called you at at the right time.
1: (laughs) You did. uh, Every time is the right time for you, Oscar. I really enjoyed meeting you in Helsinki. You're one of the great ones.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure meeting you here and we hope to see you back uh, soon at some point. And, and thanks for this interview. Very entertaining and very educational. Uh, very enjoyable. Please let us know how we can learn more about you, follow you. What are the best ways to find you on the net?
1: I'm on all the fine social media places uh, at Jay Heinrichs, J-A-Y Heinrichs. Um, and I... Uh, also maintain a website that's kind of fun it's mostly for students but adults are allowed to use it called argulab.com.
0: hmm well excellent we'll go and have a look at your website um well, again thanks a lot uh, jay and all the best
1: thanks Oscar. it's a pleasure
0: thank you for listening to today's episode did you like it Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Stitcher or visit us at timetoshinepodcast.com Until next time...